Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. So you almost killed your parents. Well, I got a haircut, as you as you just noticed. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for noticing. You've not disparaged it the way you disparaged my facial yeah. hair so no, many months look, ago at the beginning. You look quite sheveled. Yeah. Uh, I showered and I'm wearing... Sheveled. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm wearing my, essentially... I mean, I don't know if you can even call them pajamas. The, the thing I wear all the time, sweatpants and... And a t-shirt. I don't feel particularly put together, but yes, I, I got, uh, I got a haircut, um, thereby risking murdering my parents. Obviously I don't want to murder my parents, but if I did, I know it would give you endless fodder from a Freudian perspective. So it's, you know, there's a silver lining there, but they just got vaccinated. So, oh, that's good. Well, a thing that's on my mind today is the very much the balance of love and hate in intimate relationships and the coexistence of the two. Wow, and you're just dropping it right up top. All right, let's <laughs> let's get into it. I was I was going to talk about my obsessive decision making about which laptop I should buy, but you know, you're you're dealing well, with weightier matters. Let let's let's go with your direction. Well, we're both we're both dealing with weighty matters. Um I I do have a love-hate relationship with this laptop. Uh, it's powerful and efficient, but the fan noise is really bothering me. So, yeah, I mean, the most significant relationship in my life right now is with a, uh, a Dell XPS 9500. I don't want to take attention away from that. <laughs> but, I th- but uh, you know, as you know, you are, you are currently dating your mother as well. <laughs> I'm the thing. The thing that's going on in our lives is that we're both currently dating our mothers. <laughs> I my mother happens. I'm dating. Um, Just to clarify, then, for I'm not. I, I I am I am cohabiting with my mother. But this reminds me. I don't know if I've told this joke on the podcast before. But one of my you know which one, one of my all time favorite jokes by a truly brilliant and tragically underrated comedian named Howard Feller. Uh, the joke is, uh, yeah, you know, I'm really turning into my father. I uh, almost never have sex with my mom anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, there's a lot, there's a lot there for kind of <laughs> where I was thinking we might head today at some point. <laughs> but to clarify, point. I am, I am cohab. I mean, I'm living with my parents. Um, well, and if we're going to get into it, I am sleeping <laughs> in my mother, in my parents' bed. They are sleeping in a different bed because my mom had hip replacement surgery and negotiating stairs was tricky. But, um, yeah. but yeah, no, there's certainly, well, you've also called my experience here, the regression Olympics, which, um, feels apt. Yeah, I, I am. Yeah, I am. Not only am I, am I living with my parents, but you know, that's my sole social context is my parents and my, my sister and brother-in-law and my three nephews and nieces ages five to 12 also live. It's a two family house. So, so I, I see them a lot, but I am exclusively seeing family. Yeah. I, you know, I've been wanting for a while to sort of plumb plumb those depths and get into that material a little bit more in part because I, f- I feel like it is germane to the stuff that I am wrestling with a lot recently, which is 
the also the stuff of intimate relationship. Um, I am not dating my mother per se, but I appear to be dating uh, a mental projection of my mother. <laughs> some some could say. <laughs> I'm dating a 28-year-old, so she's not old enough quite yet to be my mother. But I think that a lot of what comes up for me in relationship is related to those uh, infantile feelings of um, longing and desire and loathing that come up in between children and their mothers. And I am, I feel sometimes like I'm in a fog where I don't, I'm, I'm dating someone who I don't even, I'm not even sure that I know this person apart from my, from my inner experience of them, which is, you know, after five months of a relationship, it's like, you're getting to know someone, but it's, it's kind of also like I'm dating a hologram of this person or something. I'm dating, I'm dating a representation of this person who lives inside of my mind and is so tied up in my own personal neuroses and hangups and repetitive patterns that come up with relationship that I'm just, uh, I find myself, um, yeah, getting tossed around in some stormy seas, uh, frequently. Yeah, well, let's let's get into it because the fact is, my relationship with my mom uh, and my father, which in some ways I think is more of a challenging relationship right now, given that he's experiencing some cognitive changes. But um, but yes, I think there probably is a lot to plumb in in the fact that I'm I'm living with my parents and a lot of stuff is coming up. But honestly, I feel like I'm doing well with it. I feel like I'm bringing awareness to it. I'm bringing um, yeah, I'm, you know, using the tools that I have meditation, prayer, writing, and I'm generally happy with how I'm showing up to that relationship with my parents. And also that relationship is, is probably, I think it's safe to say not changing and evolving as fast as yours is. So I, yeah. I'm honestly more interested and in, I'm guessing our listeners probably are too in, uh, in hearing about what's going on with you. So let's get into that. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm in a, cause we last, last time, just to, the recap, cause yeah, you yeah. and I, we have not had a, an in-depth offline conversation since the last podcast, which was, you had gone on this trip to the mountains with this woman <clears throat> and what, what was her name or what, what is her pseudonym? Her podcast name is Hannah. Hannah, right. You had gone to the mountains with Hannah and and you had gotten a, a message from a friend, I guess he's a friend, uh, who said that seemed almost almost perfectly engineered to, to, to trigger all your doubts. Not that I think that that was this person's intent, though I'm also I'm not yeah. clear what their intent is after the last podcast. And actually, I'd like to follow up on that, too, is if you have spoken to that person. But at any rate, threw you into this real state of, of just grave doubt and distress that you both... You and Hannah weathered it together, and it sounded yeah. like you'd come out the other side, and actually, perhaps even brought you closer together. But that was that was a few weeks ago, so I'm eager to hear what has transpired since and yeah. where you're at now. Yeah, yeah, we did weather that. We weathered that storm, 
and I think we're, we're strengthened by it in many ways and have had some really lovely, super connected times since then. Uh, with regard to uh, the friend, yeah, who dropped that, as you said, perfectly engineered nugget <laughs> into my psyche. Which is basically just, what? It was a voice memo saying. It was a voice memo saying, <laughs> you're not going to marry you were, this girl. Yeah, just as you had arrived for this, you know. Yeah, in this a big, snowy <laughs> cabin, locked into a snowy cabin with a with a blizzard, uh, heading toward our coordinates. He He couldn't have known every detail about that, but. Yeah, suffice to say, it was unwelcome. It was an unwelcome piece of advice. Yeah, so that. Well, yeah, let's leave that in the past. We talked about that a lot on the last episode. We got, we came through that. Yeah, and we have. We continue to have moments. Well, the way I would characterize my inner experience recently, kind of what I'm sitting with today, and I sat with this. A lot yesterday I did some sort of deep deep inner work and um, you did some deep inner work what, what do you mean by that um, techniques so ancient and secret that uh, I, I would be risking my life to disclose them have you ever heard of the the mysteries of Eleusis the penalty yes. <laughs> the penalty for disclosing right uh, the penalty for disclosing the precise details of the ritual at Eleusis was pain of death. But there's a, there's a school of thought that seems pretty compelling that that was actually a, a mushroom ritual. This was an ancient, what, it, was, it was a Greek thing that happened annually? Was it the Greeks or the Romans? It was the Greeks, yeah. It was the Gre- it was, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book about this right now. It's called uh, The Immortality Key. It came out in the last couple months, I think is making, making the rounds, I've, making a big I've splash in the psychedelic I've heard the world. title. Yeah. And it's this, uh, the, uh, it's written by this guy, Brian, I can't pronounce his last name, Murarescu or something. And he's, he is a, a lawyer and studied classics in college and sort of took it upon himself to, to study this mystery for like 12 years, d- devote 12 years of his life to trying to understand what was the, concoction at the center of the Eleusinian mysteries right, we and know, was it a psychedelic we know they were ingesting something and I've heard theories yeah. that it was wine perhaps ergot if I'm pronouncing that right ergot in, infected wine that had been yeah. you know derived from wheat yeah. and ergot was the basis for LSD LSD of course is a synthetic molecule but Hoffman was working off uh, derivations or variations of the ergot molecule so I've, I've heard different theories but one certainly has been that it was psilocybin containing mushrooms. Yeah. Well, I certainly can't speak to that, not being an expert in the classics. Yes. Uh, however, you engaged yesterday, in some sort of indeterminate. Yesterday, I, I engaged in meditation. And okay, we can go with that euphemism. <laughs> um, I've only ever ingested psychedelic substances in Peru uh, in the 1980s. <laughs> when you when, when you were three years old, <laughs> that's why you're such a prodigy of psychedelic <laughs> wisdom. <laughs> you, you, you had a peak mystical experience at 18 months, <laughs> saw through the illusion of duality, and here we are. This is your final. I, I am the heal, healing me is the final hurdle till you ascend to the ne- to the next plane of yeah. It of turns out energy. to be. It d- turns out to be. <laughs> 
not an inconsiderable one. You're ready to throw in the towel. I don't even know if I'm going to get to it on this incarnation, and that's fine. That's yeah. what we have to. That's, what, that's my ones. karma. Yeah, I'll get them the next time. You know, but, you know, if I come back next time, as I've, I always find it funny when people talk about like if you're really bad in this life, you'll come back as a mosquito or something. Because it's like, who cares if you come back as a mosquito? It lasts like 24 hours. That, well, for by our time scale, I mean, time is right. you know, time is called the great subjective, and I I think you know probably all dimensions are perceived very differently. Obviously, space is very different when you're you know ten millimeters long. But uh, that's so a that's good point. To say that, yeah. Uh, so maybe a mosquito still feels like its life is really dragging on. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. I think a lot of mosquitoes undergo existential crises about three hours in. <laughs> if only they had your experience of going to Peru in early life. And so yeah. you were meditating. Yeah. But you were meditating. I was meditating yesterday, and I really tr- sat with and tried my darndest to bring compassion and awareness to the fact that I have tremendous feelings of love for the person that I'm dating Hannah and also there is a part of me that absolutely wants at times nothing to do with her that wants to push her out of my life and run far away and again what is sort of different about this relationship compared to past relationships is I'm able to check that at times and and ask myself do you like, do you really want to do that? Do you really want to run away from this relationship and uh, whatever, reactivate your hinge profile and like get back out there and be dating right now? And I'm pretty sure I don't want to do that at the moment. I really, really care for this person. There's a lot going for this relationship. Uh, and yet I have to acknowledge that there are times where I want just every fiber of my being is screaming at me saying push her away run away hide disappear from this relationship see it's I just I really can't relate to this at all this is just so foreign no as you're talking I'm just, I was thinking like man we just give just, it to me straight I'm a monster <laughs> no if we played a, a podcast we recorded you know eight months ago, you know, from, from June or July, we would hear the exact same thing. The difference being, I'm the one saying those words about Clara. Did you have that? I value so this woman. Tr- the wanting to run away. Yeah. I mean, I remember one in particular and, um, if we, if we were diligent about this, we could put this in the episode notes, what that episode it was. But I mean, that's kind of arrogant to assume anyone is going to go back and listen to previous episodes to what we're referencing. But there was that one where you and I recorded, she had come back. She'd been away for like four oh, or yeah. five days, the longest uh, time apart we'd had in you know a month or so of cohabiting at that point. Yeah. This was probably May, maybe, or April, probably May. And she she came back and we recorded this podcast an hour or two after she arrived i did not want her there i had this really intense almost panic reaction that i couldn't understand i love this woman i i appreciate her presence and yet the strong feeling was i don't want her to come back Mm -hmm. and 
you know, I don't know if we ever totally cracked what was going on there, but, but yeah, the feeling of having a great affinity for someone and appreciation, but I don't want to project what I was going through, but there was a very strong, um, yeah, this, uh, this arose periodically and it was different from, you know, in past relationships, you and I have talked about this in past relationships. My pattern often would be to find something wrong with the person, some sort of perceived flaw or shortcoming. And, and then to use that as a reason why, oh, this isn't the right person. This isn't going to work out. And with Clara that did emerge early on, but I was able through prayer largely and just intention to let that go to just be like, oh, my mind is just throwing those things up and really to say yes to the relationship. So when that fear arose with her, it wasn't like this OCD type fear for me. It wasn't like, oh, this is wrong in an OCD sense. It was really, there wasn't much mental content around it. That's what was puzzling. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't want her to be here because I want more time to write or I don't want mm-hmm. her to be here because I want um, more freedom or more space. It was like, no, my every reason in my mind is I want her here, yet my body was like fear, very strong. Yeah. So again, I don't want to project that onto you. But no, no, very, could, yeah, very relevant. Yeah, but as you're talking, it sounds, it sounds similar where there's this disconnect between what feels true to you, not just like mental stuff, but it feels true to you that you really, you love this woman deeply and you have yeah. great appreciation for her. And yet a part of you just wants to run the fuck away. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and reminding me of that experience. I remember talking about that. And it's so helpful for me to hear that because one of the first things I struggle with whenever these feelings come up is the the question of which we've sort of talked about this question in, in various manifestations and colors throughout the course of this show, which is this, uh, this bad feeling that I'm feeling inside myself. Is this a common thing that lots of people go through or is this uniquely is this is this uniquely mine and a signal that I am uniquely fucked up and broken or that this relationship is uniquely fucked up and broken and I should end it right now so that's sort of like the first gate I have to go through sometimes when this stuff comes up and so it's so soothing to me to hear you share about a similar experience you've had I mean I think doubt about partners whether it's doubt about them or the relationship or compatibility is is universal but it can i guess i want to hear more about what what you're actually experiencing i again recapitulated what i was experiencing when it felt similar eight months ago but i don't actually know if it was similar so yeah let's talk more about what is this feeling for you and yeah well I think that there's two because there's a chance that you really are a unique, a uniquely fucked up monster. So I want to let's not assume that you're you normal. Make sure, man. Just you want to also sure when, when did that. I become the yardstick for normalcy? Well, if Adam has <laughs> felt it, then it must be totally healthy. <laughs> He's only been point. hospitalized a couple of times against his will. <laughs> oh, it's been a while. It's been a while. I'm living in my parents' attic, man. I'm pretty much crushing it. So anyway, but no, let's, let's, I, I mean the short spoiler alert, I'm sure what you're going through is, um, it is not unique, but, but I also don't want to assume that's the same as what I went through. I want to, I, yeah, I want to hear more about it. I think that that kind of doubt is inherent to these sorts of, uh, self-loathing ideations, depressive ideations of 
oh no, this is unique to me. This is not like, I know other people go through stuff, but this thing that I'm going through, this is different. This is a, like, this is a whole totally different, nasty, ugly thing that I need to hide. Um, I at least find that for myself. And so again, I find it very helpful to air these things out and, uh, recognize that everyone struggles with things that probably feel uniquely dirty inside their minds. Yeah, I think, uh, I think this is, well, this is one reason why I value doing this podcast is people hear us talk about things that, and it, it normalizes it for them. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the older I get, the more I appreciate that we're, we're, yeah, I think particularly with forms of mental suffering and anguish, they're pretty, I I, I have less and less appreciation for my own uniqueness and other people's uniqueness, especially, you know, having OCD because you hear some really fucking far out bizarre obsessions and compulsions. Mm. And then you realize they're actually pretty common. And this Mm. is, this is what I hope I don't take us too far afield of this digression, but I think it connects back. Part of the burden of OCD is this burden of shame that you're, I mean, I'm so glad I have OCD now rather than 30 years ago when it was not widely recognized. And it was because, you know, with depression, people get it. Like I've never experienced depression. I won't pretend I have any idea what it feels like, but I understand conceptually the idea of hopelessness and Mm. um, self-loathing and, you know, profound lethargy and all of that because I've experienced those things in, in, you know, infinitely milder forms. But if you don't have OCD, understanding it, it, these are just bizarre fucking rituals, particularly people who have, um, it's funny, I was just um, I was just being interviewed by someone for an, an article, um, not a big deal, front page of the New York Times, but uh, it was uh, <laughs> something coming out about psychedelics and OCD in some online publication. And the example I gave of OCD was people having um, unwanted sexual thoughts. Mm. And I use that example a lot just because I want to get it out there that, oh, this is a common form of OCD because it is so devastating for people who have it, who don't even realize it's OCD. Often it's it's thoughts, fear that you're a pedophile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that can be so, so disabling. And it's not that these people are pedophiles, but you know they have intrusive thoughts that mm-hmm. could tend towards that direction. And... So anyway, I think I have taken us in a bit of a digression, but my point being that it's I've seen it be incredibly healing for people who have that form of OCD and all forms of OCD when they realize, oh, this is actually, a, there's a name for it, POCD, pedophile OCD. That's how yeah. fucking common it is. Mm. There's HOCD, homosexual OCD, am I gay? That's how common that is. And yeah. everyone who has those forms that I've met was devastated by the thought that this was their own unique affliction. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I guess to it. circle it back to to you, yeah, I think it's a safe bet that that whatever forms of aversion or fear or doubt you're feeling are probably not unique to you. But uh, but sorry, you were you were saying something? Yeah. Well, I yeah. Just to f- finish that, what you were saying about OCD, I fi- as you were saying that, I was reflecting on experiences I've had as a psychiatrist talking to patients of mine with OCD or with obsessive thought patterns and especially patients uh with schizophrenia and and Mm -hmm. ocd or ocd symptoms which is which is quite common and i've been struck sometimes by how people struggle with thoughts that are so clearly universal experiences 
but to certain minds it it can feel like a terrible affliction and what and it's something i've always taken pleasure in is telling patients of mine like i have thoughts like that like i struggle with thoughts like that you know violent thoughts aggressive thoughts aggressive impulses things like that i'm just saying actually like i know this feels really terrible to you and you feel you feel really marked and dirty by having these thoughts but actually everyone has that yeah and i think you know the the way to freedom with those thoughts with with ocd is um is acceptance is accepting yeah. the thoughts the, the where you get into trouble is when you try to neutralize the thoughts so people who have that pedophile ocd you know it's not like they're having necessarily detailed thoughts, sexual thoughts about children. It's more like, oh, I just walked past a playground and I looked at the kids. Does that mean I'm a pedophile? Yeah. And then they go into it. They start trying to find reasons for and against. Well, I'm clearly not a pedophile because I'm not sexually aroused right now. Yeah, but maybe I really am and I'm just repressing it. Mm-hmm. But I've never had these thoughts before. Well, you probably, you know, you can just, it's endless. And of course, with OCD, the, the whole way OCD operates, the reason it exists and becomes so entrenched is the more you try to reassure yourself, the more you're fixating on it, the more energy you're giving it, the bigger it gets. The bigger it gets, the more incentive you have to try to eliminate it and reassure yourself. And you try ever harder and it's the whole vicious cycle. And I'm not implying that that's what you're going through with, with, with these doubts, but I do think that the first step towards freedom is this is a cliche, but I think it's probably true. I think it's always acceptance. It's always yeah. acceptance and yeah. accepting that. Yeah. In your case, you're having these thoughts and, um, they, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they're true or significant, but yeah, I, I want to, I, I, I do want to hear more about your specific experience. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. Back to my unique brokenness, <laughs> my, my unique and particular brokenness. I think it's acceptance and I think it's the level at which you pay attention to the experience you're having because I feel like I've learned a lot about dealing with intrusive thoughts of this nature from you who I perceive as being really good at paying attention to the emotional uh, and sort of somatic representation of the experience rather than getting tied up in the story the sort of intellectual aspects of Mm. what does it mean? What should I do about it? Should I try to fix it? Should I make a decision based on this thing that I'm experiencing? And I feel that I did some good work around that. Um, yesterday, as I Mm. saw these things come up, I really paid attention to just being with, the being with the emotion coming up and being with the often these things are represented to me as it kind of in the language uh of internal family systems which is a i say language but it's often visually represented in internal family systems and that's a that's a system that works for me internal family you've talked about it before but it's this is a this is a sort of psychological framework or or theory yeah it's a psychological framework or theory based around uh the supposition that we have different parts inside of us we are made of constituent parts that are like characters in uh, a vast 
play that makes up our psyche and that our psyche is not one thing, uh, one me, but it's, you know, there might be a, a part of a, a jealous part of you, a loving part of you, a caretaker, uh, a violent part of you. There's, there's kind of all these different characters and it gets, and they're, you know, they have their own patterns of wounding and they're trying to protect you or help you in different ways. And I'm no expert on it, but it works really well for me at times to, when I feel uh, an overwhelming emotion, fear, you know, for example, about Hannah, to that that shows up for me as like a I think I talked about this in our last recording that will show up for me as like a wounded kind of like pre-adolescent part of me like a young teenager kind of guy and yesterday I really tried to sit with this energy coming out of him that wants to push this woman out of my life that just wants nothing to do with her wants to get her far away from me and i tried to just be with that just be just Mm -hmm. kind of let that express itself hold space for it with um yeah with loving awareness and attention let uh, let a uh, tantrum unfold inside of me and i think that's that's it it can feel counterintuitive at, 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 at times to just let these things unfold without trying to do anything about it or figure anything out. But as we've talked about many times, I think that's the first step. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, uh, so when you say that this sort of desire to push Hannah away comes from this part of you, this, this wounded, wounded inner child, adolescent boy, how do you perceive it? coming from that or or maybe a better question is why why, why do you think this this adolescent boy in you wants to push her away no yeah. and perhaps that's not a question that ultimately needs to be answered it just needs to be honored this desire which obviously doesn't mean you need to give into that desire but but i am curious if you have any insight as to yeah what what is it trying to protect or or control I don't think I entirely know yet. I Sounds think like you need to do more meditation, man. <laughs> Try a higher dose of meditation next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nine no, hours. Don't. Go on. Nine, nine <laughs> continuous hours. Nine um, hours in a dark room. Um, I don't entirely know yet, which I think is as good a reason as any to, um, to not make a determination that, you know, this relationship is doomed or something like that. Um, yeah. And again, I'm aware that this feeling is counterbalanced and is the shadow side of a tremendous amount of love and affection for this woman Uh, like absolutely pouring out of me just love and tenderness and 
and all, and you know beyond love and tenderness um desires to merge you know desire you know have you ever had the experience being with a woman and you want to like it's it's like you want your bodies and it's not necessarily a sexual thing it's like a but you want you're you're kissing someone's kissing someone's hair or something and you want you have your body has the feeling of wanting to just like swallow their body just be one body you want like you like the way their breath smells yeah yeah no i've yes you want to drink their breath and you want to be this your yeah the cellular hunger for closeness and tenderness you're perfectly describing my feelings towards my mom right now so exactly exactly (laughs) no but i i do i certainly i i've i've Yes, I, I felt that not with every woman I've been with, actually not with most women I've been with, but I, I have I have I have had that feeling. I had that with with Clara, where there was I looked at it as like a very deep physical affection for her, as opposed to not not a sexual. I mean, there was sexual, obviously str- the strong sexual connection with Clara as well, but this was a separate, independent thing. Where yeah, 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 really, um, yeah, no, it's a beautiful thing. And something that I want to explore, I feel I need to explore, I want to talk about with you, and that feels very vulnerable, is that I feel like I have trouble in this relationship, in all relationships, at my current developmental stage, whatever it is, I feel as though I have trouble mixing that sort of... I don't know what we would call it, uh, that sort of love. I think there's probably a good Greek word. You know, there's like a number of different Greek words for types of love. Like agape is one. I forget which one it is. Maybe for our next episode, I'll bone up on like the the different Greek terms for love. Yeah. (laughs) But that like wanting to drink someone's breath and like eat. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. Eat them. Like they're, yeah, merge, engulf. Yeah. Yeah. That I have... I have trouble. I think that's a a sort of mm, primitive or childlike type of love. Not it's a beautiful thing and it feels good to experience. But I think I have trouble mixing that with uh romantic love and erotic passion. And I think a lot of men struggle with this. What do you mean trouble mixing it? I wonder if it gets in the way of my being able to feel like sexual desire. Um, so, as I said, for me, if I'm if I'm accurately perceiving what you're talking about, you know, I'll look back at Clara as my last relationship, where I felt both of those, and they felt they did feel independent, but they didn't feel at all mutually exclusive. It didn't feel so. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm not fully understanding. What no, I think maybe you're less you're less uniquely broken than I. Yeah, am. I might be. I might be more conventionally broken. <laughs> <laughs> that should have been the title of this podcast: conventionally <laughs> broken. <laughs> that's a good one. That is a good one. That's the episode name. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think we have the episode name. All right. Um, but but yeah. So tell me more. How 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 are these two desires? They're both forms of desire: sexual and this engulfing, merging desire. How how are they at odds for you? Mm. 
I don't entirely know. I think that this, I wonder one if this, Sorry, go on, go on. Yeah, I wonder if this, uh, I don't have as, I don't have so much experience with this, um, merging ah. desire for love. I don't have, this is the first girlfriend I've had in five years. Yeah. Um, I've had lots of the other kind of desire in the last five years. And I think that in some way I've grown accustomed to, um, I haven't had to navigate this and I wonder if it's easier for me to feel erotic love an erotic desire for someone where there's more distance between us. Yeah. As you're talking, what comes to me is the idea of vulnerability and yeah. that perhaps there is a deep vulnerability with, I mean, what you're describing is to me, the signature, this, you know, wanting to merge, drink their breath is sort of that that's the signature feeling of being in love with mm -hmm. someone versus, you know, having love for someone. Mm. And and I wonder if the core of this is you're feeling just this deep vulnerability because you feel your heart is very open to this woman. And and that vulnerability, you know, I, I think I think sex when there is that deep vulnerability is can be astoundingly wonderful, but also it can be scary. Mm. And and because sex also Sex is very vulnerable, but we we delude ourselves that it's not vulnerable often, yeah. and and so I think in some ways it's easier to you know just fuck the shit out of someone who you don't have deep feelings for. You're just kind of giving voice to that one part of you, that erotic part, and we imagine that we're shutting down the other part, or at least keeping it at bay, the love part, the heart part. Yeah. Of course, I don't think we ever are fully. I don't think sex is ever truly insignificant, but yeah. but that's another subject, but. But yeah, if in some way it's, here's another way to look at it. Sex is vulnerable and this, I'm going to call it in love feeling is vulnerable. Yeah. And so maybe it's as simple as we're just looking at some basic math here that, that in your unique or conventional brokenness, you're cool. You, you can, you know how to handle the, the vulnerability of sex in a way that mm -hmm. doesn't freak you out. Mm -hmm. But when you add to it, the vulnerability of this in love, wanting to drink her breath feeling on top of sex, it's like too much. Hmm. That is really, yeah, that really resonates as you, as you were talking about sex, the vulnerability of sex, I was thinking about, yeah, how sex entails, uh, bringing this very like masculine polarity for me as a, as a person who identifies as a man and identifies with the masculine. In, Dude, you're going to get us canceled. What the fuck are you doing, Jordan? <laughs> I didn't. Uh, Everyone, Jordan is, that's not, Jordan is a <laughs> Native American transgendered. <laughs> God, I can't believe you outed us. Fuck. <laughs> All right. Uh, whatever. Let's, you know, at, at least maybe we can get on parlor or something. We can get some right wing. <laughs> Jordan and I apologize for, for history, basically, and the future, everything. People like us have done. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep bringing the... in humor, but I. But you're in a vulnerable place, and I. I want to go into that place. So I'm... no, it's okay. It's good. I just i. I gotta. I gotta think the, 
the Jewish ancestral trauma. It doesn't count for much anymore. Um, Gets us a given, little bit of a buy, though. A little bit of a free pass. Because, like, whatever, whatever cred the Jewish people had built up from the millennia of pogroms and genocide, it's like we've we've pretty well spent we've pretty well spent that currency. I've always been pronouncing it pogroms, so I I don't think I have any <laughs> currency. But no, let's cut off. Let, let's go. I want to go. Keep keep right. on with. So, so sorry were, for sorry for Palestine. That was what I was getting. <laughs> so to. You, you were saying you you, you were saying though. So the vulnerability of sex, yeah, as you, you identify as a, that. as a, as a, as a, yeah, as a, um, we'll, we'll bleep this out later, but as a, a straight male, essentially. <laughs> a straight male. Having, having, having done my homework and, uh, t- tried everything out, I promise. Yeah, I haven't so even I've, tried shit out. You've at least yeah, made we've out talked with some about dudes. This. I've made out with dudes, so we, uh, so I come, I, I come to my straightness, honestly, I promise. So I was thinking about, as you were saying that I think about the vulnerability of sex and showing up in the, in, in, in the masculine for sex. And I was thinking about, there's always turkeys outside my house. Uh, laughing for several reasons, but I've, (laughs) I've been having, I've had run-ins, repeated run-ins with an aggressive pack of turkeys, but that's not even, it's turkey video. Yeah. Yeah. It's turkey mobbing season. And I think it's, I think it's turkey, like sexy season because oh, the last time oh. i saw turkeys outside the guys so these turkeys think i'm moving in on their 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 turkey women that's probably what's going on maybe yeah you're too you're too i mean high. i've had turkeys come after me really and, uh yeah they're yeah. scary with the big like third claw they have they're they're yeah they're um i actually have taken to one walk that i do around this neighborhood there's this, there are these three turkeys and one always comes at me. So there's, I've been picking up ice balls and <laughs> smashing it on the ground in a sign of dominance as I approach and it works. He, he skitters off anyway. <laughs> so you've seen them doing their big, their big feathers out. Yeah. And clucks thing. at me and just yeah. starts. Uh, yeah. I also got hissed at by a gigantic, gigantic fucking swan like three yeah. weeks ago. I also have that on video. So yeah, the, the the fowl here are not um, are not my not my friends, not my feathered friends. But go on, there are turkeys yeah, well, out the your ma- window. There's turkeys out my window. They don't tend to take much notice of me or bother me because I'm clearly not exuding as potent of a pheromone signature as you are. But <laughs> <laughs> beside the point, you see the you see the male turkeys with their plumage all expanded and. The, uh, their chests puffed out and doing doing their mating presentation for the female turkeys and as you were talking about the vulnerability of sex that came to mind that the male turkey in its splendor came to mind and i was just thinking about like yeah they look so ridiculous like it's a it's actually a very vulnerable it's a very it's it's a very vulnerable position to be in to be this to put ridiculous, yourself out there. to put yourself out there with your, yeah, put your big plumage out, and it's easier with somebody that you don't, that doesn't know you as well. But isn't the plumage thing? Isn't that ultimately about mating? I mean, to me, I guess what I'm saying is, I see that as as more a component of the mating thing than the in love thing. Because the I'm turkeys, just using yeah. it. I'm just using it as. I mean, I may be looking at this metaphor in too literal or deep level, let's, but let's not get lost in the weeds with it. 
yeah. I'm just just thinking about like the male turkey with its plumage out as a symbol for the um, the kind of vulnerability and, uh, and and like ridiculousness in some ways of of sex and how mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think there I I really right, think the there's sex, something yeah. mm-hmm. I think there's something to this what you were saying about vulnerability that it's easier for me uh, to put on that whole show with someone that I don't have this other kind of love with uh, that I with whom I'm not known in that deep way that yeah and yeah and that that accords with other things that we've talked about you know in your history on the podcast where you know when you have dated people you've often chosen to see them quite infrequently yeah and yeah and i and i relate to you know i relate to that i also don't relate to that because i mean i I relate to the desire for safety coming from distance but i've also found that for me sex becomes stale very quickly if there's not a deep emotional connection yeah but Honestly, I mean, there, you and I have a significant age difference, and there, there, that that has some, that's something that's really been more and more as I've gotten older. Mm-hmm. But I also am aware of yeah, there, there's a there's a deep vulnerability with with sex, and I I certainly think that aspect is not uniquely broken. I think that's you know part of p- part of why. Um, Oh, I don't know if that's true, but a- anyway, I-, I certainly think sex is vulnerable for everyone, and for a lot of people, it's easier to surrender sexually to the sexual moment if they feel safer and safety. Often, I mean, in a sense, I think the ultimate safety is being fully open and 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 loving with another person. Yeah, but that's a very vulnerable safety, a less vulner- yeah. vulnerable. Yeah, you know, I-, I can imagine this person can hurt you in a way that no one can you've been with could hurt you in the last five years. Cause you haven't opened your heart to anyone else to that degree. Yeah. So I can imagine having that sort of baseline level of vulnerability because of the love. And then you throw sex into the mix and it's, yeah, I be, I could see it being overwhelmingly scary at times. And if I'm going to, yeah, I'll let you reflect like a good therapist. Hmm. Yeah. You're doing great. Thanks. Thanks. This is like a two two fifty an hour session. Yeah. <laughs> Crushing it. Yeah, I I totally agree that the the ultimate safety of it, it's it's a cheap safety, the safety of um, whatever the the casual relationship, the distant relationship, the one night stand. It's that's uh, that's such a less rich form of safety than the true safety of deep trust connection knowing. And that is perhaps at this stage of this relationship, I'm on the precipice um, between I'm caught in this middle point where the first kind of safety is not an option with this woman. Um, and I'm still struggling or trying to figure out how to, or if I'm going to get to the, to that deeper, more profound type of safety, I'm still, I'm finding my way there. And I wonder if maybe I misspoke though, by using the word safety there, because it's a, I think in deeply 
intimate, vulnerable relationships. Well, yeah, I guess there's a safety that's built of a trust and a shared experience that often can perhaps only come with time. I have to throw a perhaps in there because I haven't had this experience in many, many years of a long, you know, really long-term relationship. But yeah, so, so maybe it is simply a matter of you, you being at that point where you're feeling all these these deep feelings, but you just you know, as you said at the outset of this episode, in some sense, you you don't know that woman, this woman, that well. I mean, it's still a relatively new thing. Yeah. And the roadblock that my mind throws up continuously is, no, you're not going to get to that point of safety because this this isn't the relationship to do that in. Like this is, yeah. my mind is constantly throwing up these, yeah, pick, picking at little things and telling me, no, you shouldn't be working on this to get to that deeper place of safety because this is the wrong, this is the wrong one. Yeah. And you're deluding yourself and you're trying to convince yourself that this is the right one because you're afraid of being alone or something. But be careful about making that investment because this isn't right for X, Y, Z reasons, which is a, a really hard place to be in. Cause I do fully mm-hmm. believe that the way, the way out of the struggle in relationship is through is to go turn toward the difficulty, go deeper use it as a vehicle to learn more about yourself, uncover your own wounds, etc. But it it's hard for me to commit to that. Well, and you can believe that, but I mean so the the that fear, the or the the sort of the the verbal component of that fear. This is the wrong person. We could kind of boil it down to that, yeah. which is something I'm very familiar with and you're very familiar with, with, yeah. your, with your past relationships. And so clearly it's not like every relationship, well, you should just double down and commit because this is how you're going to learn more. But I think it is also recognizing that, I don't know. I mean, I just, I feel like for me, I'm, I don't think I'm going to, have a relationship where that isn't there at least some of the time, you know, I think part of it is also my parents met when my mother was 17. My father was 19. I'm pretty sure they've never been with anyone else sexually, uh, not not including me, obviously, um, (laughs) family doesn't count, especially not during COVID. Um, (laughs) but, uh, no, but, and, and I've thought about it that, in some ways, I think, you know, not that they didn't know any better, but it was, they, they, I, I think the more experience you have of different relations with different people, the more it becomes unavoidable that, yes, there are there are losses with anyone. No one is perfect. Everyone has, you know, their pros and their cons, and anyone who you decide to ultimately commit to, uh, you're going to be leaving other beautiful qualities that you could have gotten with someone else on the table. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you're 33, you've you, you've had quite a few relationships. So I guess what I'm saying, and I hope this is reassuring, is I feel like 
I don't think it can be as simplistic as saying, oh, just ignore that voice saying she's not the right one. But I think it's also, I think if you wait until a relationship where that voice isn't there, I, I don't think, I think you'll be waiting forever. I would guess yeah. at this point that probably will be there all the time, which doesn't necessarily mean you can just say, ignore it. But uh, I feel like I'm, I'm barely justifying a $75 an hour rate right now. I've really, <laughs> I was on a streak. I've really fallen off. Um, no, no, no. Very helpful. I, com- coming back to my experience with, with Clara, where there was this moment, we've talked about it in earlier episodes, where it was when she came to visit me for the first time in New York. So the second time we'd ever seen each other. And it was like, there'd been so much buildup. And then she's there. And I was like, oh, I don't know about this. I just started finding all these things that were wrong. And, and I realized, okay, I have a choice now. And my choice is, do I want to open my heart? Yeah, And I decided I do want to open my heart even with these doubts. And I just sort of accepted that, okay, my mind is going to be pointing out these things, but I'm going to make the conscious choice to open my heart. Prayer was very helpful there. I prayed for the willingness to open my heart. And those doubts largely dropped away for me. Mm. And, you know, I mean, they resurfaced from time to time. So I feel like... Yeah, I think what I'm trying to say is I think, I think, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. The fact that your mind says that it doesn't mean that you shouldn't heed that, but it certainly doesn't mean that there's any truth to that. Cause I think your mind will always, will always say that probably. Yeah. I want to read a passage from a book that I'm reading. It's called undefended love. Mm, like the title. You've ever heard of it? Yeah. No, I haven't. It's by uh, two psychologists, Jet Saris and Marlena Lyons. Um, I'm actually reading it with Hannah. I bought it for us for oh, wow. Valentine's Day. That's the kind of it's the kind of Valentine's. If you just put that in your Hinge profile, man, I'm sure you could do better than her. Like that, so just you're gonna rake them in. <laughs> you know what? I actually, you know, I'm not on Hinge anymore. But what, what I used to have in my Hinge profile, including when I met Hannah, was. Um, one of the little prompts was uh, dating me is like, you know, colon. Yeah. And my response was, how soon is too soon for couples therapy? Yeah. <laughs> that's what dating me is like. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what, for our first Valentine's Day, you know, five months in, I got us uh, a relationship book to read together. <laughs> Does it have exercises? Is it, is it a workbook? Uh, I haven't, I'm, I'm still in the beginning. I don't know if it, okay. it probably has exercises later. It's like your standard, it seems, it's your standard uh, sort of spiritual self-helpy setup where it's like a little nugget and then here's the story of da-da-da person mm-hmm. that we worked with. You're, it kind of fits that um, psychology self-help template. But this passage uh, really resonated with me from a, section called the fire of our internal struggle cultivating the personal depth and maturity necessary to live an intimate life is a developmental task facing each and every one of us it is not an easy one but in terms of relationship it creates a sense of belonging clarity and joy that can never be taken away It requires a heart that is strong enough to let some of our usual guards down so we can touch and be touched by another It demands that we interrupt our emotional reactions when lashing out seems beyond our control. 
It calls on us to struggle against every instinct that compels us to attack, shield ourselves, or hide. So that really was helpful for me, especially the last line about uh, fighting those Shielding and hiding and, yeah. The instinct to shield and hide, because I... Oftentimes, I I think there's a sort of conventional wisdom in the culture that you'll get from people where a relationship, especially early in a relationship, it should be easy all of the time. It should feel breezy. And if there's, you know, if you're feeling, if you're feeling chaotic, uh, conflictual feelings within the first six months, then gosh, I don't know this. That's probably a good sign that this isn't the right one. And whenever I receive a piece of wisdom, either from you or, you know, from a mentor or a book or a therapist or something that speaks in opposition to that, this is like, no, like it's normal to really, really think this is terrible and want to run away. Um, and it's okay to, it's okay to not do that. It's okay to fight that instinct. That is super, super soothing for me. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't, I I guess, I'm unsurprised that you're experiencing what you're experiencing when you're dealing with feelings. And again, really what it comes down to is vulnerability. You're dealing with a degree of vulnerability that you've not felt in at least five years. Mm-hmm. And you're doing it now with a, you're, you're a different person than you were five years ago. You have more yeah. awareness, you have more experience. So in a sense, I think all of that opens you up to even more vulnerability. And yeah. Yeah, fear is a natural reaction to vulnerability. It doesn't mean it's always a healthy reaction or the healthy is such a, it's kind of a useless term, but it doesn't mean that that's natural. doesn't mean, oh, we should follow that. But yeah, I'm totally unsurprised that, that you're feeling, to me, this fear is vulnerability and the intense feelings of wanting to drink her breath are that, that's you're in love and you're feeling vulnerable and it can be, yeah, overwhelming. Hmm. It sounds quite simple when you put it that way. As you said that, I'm just like, oh yeah, that means I'm in love. I can put yeah. a whole story to it. Of, oh, you want this infantile desire to merge with the with the mother archetype and this and that. It's oh yeah, I'm just in. That's love. I'm in love. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good working theory. And in terms of the, is this wrong? I mean. You're not asking for guidance there because I think you've made your decision. But yeah, I would say, you know, you don't even have to push that voice away. Just for me, a very helpful word when dealing with OCD, but just general uncertainty in life is is maybe. Just all right, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Let's, see, let's see what happens. I, I don't need to figure this out now. Yeah. I just need the very simple question is, do I want to continue opening my heart and saying yes to this? Mm-hmm. And Unfortunately, the choice for you is, do I want to continue opening my heart and saying yes to this, even though there may be moments of, of deep fear and doubt? Mm-hmm. I love that. Maybe. Yeah. There's not enough. Because you're not going to figure out in your head whether this is right or wrong. And even, I mean, let's go deeper. The whole idea of a relationship being right or wrong, I mean, there are certainly many, many people, majority of people, probably for any individual, where it's clearly, this is not the right person, and you know that immediately but you know once once you're a few months in i think there's always going to be yeah there's some things that feel really good there's other things that feel trickier and 
I think you will get more clarity with time, but I think you'll get maximal clarity if you're not trying to figure it out every mm-hmm. step of the way and you're kind yeah. of letting things, because it's, it's sort of like you know quantum mechanics where observing something changes it. Yeah. The more closely you're observing moment to moment in this hypervigilant, I'm sort of projecting what I, I can do so mm-hmm. nice, but this hypervigilant mode, well, that's affecting what you're actually observing. It's going to affect the other person. I mean, I remember a moment I had with uh, Grace, who we talked about, you know, this was 15 years ago, where she started crying because she could tell my sort of OCD scrutiny of her, and she felt it was making her more awkward and less funny and less she because she knew she was being evaluated. Mm. I'm not saying that that's what's happening with Hannah, but (laughs) (laughs) you you don't put someone at their best when they feel like they're under a microscope, when they feel like they're they're at a job interview every day. (laughs) When you're holding a clipboard. (laughs) Ooh, that's an X. Check mark for that one, though. Oh, my God. That's what it feels like in my head sometimes. It's maddening. Oh, man. It's so hard to turn it off. I have been there. I have been there. Oh, prayer is, you know, we could do a whole episode on prayer someday. It's, it's, and I've said this before, I don't think you need to believe in a higher power to pray, but I think it's a very powerful tool when there's something that I'm powerless over that I want to shift and yeah, yeah, praying for willingness, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean that, that feeling you've described it before too, where you're with this person, but you're really just in your head. Yeah. In your head, evaluating, figuring out. Yeah, no. Sometimes you just got to hope and pray. And another thing that came up for me yesterday in my period of meditation was um, I, I, I was processing some stuff. Another thing, uh, another thing going on in my life that's that brings difficulty and makes it more difficult to... Um, yeah, get a clean sample in my relationship, so to speak, to really like a, a factor that adulterates my whole experience is the fact that I work, my work recently has been extremely difficult. Uh, my professional work, meaning in the psychiatric emergency yeah. room. Yeah, it sounds like it from our past conversations. Um, last week, I worked four 16 hour shifts in a row. Um, which I'm going to stop doing soon. Cause it's not good for my, <laughs> it's not good for me. Yeah. Uh, I worked 7am to 11pm Saturday through Tuesday. And I have been trying to figure out the impact that that has on me and how to let it go, how to get it out of my system or how to do whatever it needs to be done with it. And I was watching as I was sitting yesterday, just watching this kind of like hell realm stuff coming up, just these seeing how the imprint of violence and misery and chaos is sort of stamped into my system after spending so much time in a psychiatric emergency room, which is in in many ways... um, one of the one of the most hellish places in our that that you can go in 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 this country i think you know I, yeah I, I i bet like it is a hospital is a place where we are trying to help people and it's not like a prison um 
I don't want to. But it's people in just incredible states of distress. Incredible states of distress. And desperately need help that, you know, that is often beyond human agency to provide. Yeah. They're just going through some shit and yeah. you, you do what you can, but yeah. yeah. So I was watching this come up in me yesterday, come out of me. And the thought that came to mind was just like, well, this is all, this is all real. This is all in the world. This is, this is happening for people. There is incredible pain, incredible suffering, incredible injustice. Yeah. And I am going to choose love. And it didn't feel that didn't in that moment. It didn't feel like a, I didn't, I wasn't able to feel that love that I said I was choosing. It was prayer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like that's what Mark's prayer is. It's not like boom, love. It's like, please, dear God, I choose love. Cause that's, I just, cause that's the, the only thing that makes sense to me. That's all I can do. Even though I'm feeling totally overwhelmed right now with the memories of all of this shit that I dealt with at work last week. I have to choose love. I pray to choose love. Yeah. It's so what comes up for me as you're saying that is just as someone who, who loves you, do you, I mean, it sounds like this is a, a, a degree beyond what you've experienced before, or maybe you're just having more awareness in terms of this, you know, let's call it trauma. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying it's the same as, you know, I don't have to give an example of a horrible trauma, but it's so what comes up most strongly for me is wondering, do do you, do you have ways to process this with other people? I mean, you have your own therapist. You have, because it feels to me like, well, first of all, to what you were saying in terms of regards to Hannah, yeah, this is a big, as you put it, adulterating factor in your existence right now. Yeah. You're you're dealing with uh, some heavy professional shit that is far beyond what you've dealt with before. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've done, you know, you've counseled people and I'm sure you've seen people, but this is, I mean, just even the intensity of that unremitting fucking four 16 hour days in a row. Yeah. Like it feels to me just hearing you talk about it. It feels to me like, oh man, this, this guy needs, you, you need support to process this. <laughs> need help. <laughs> yeah. And by, and by the way, I'm happy to provide that support as a friend. Oh, I mean, yeah. Well, I like talking about yeah, it with you. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be on the podcast. Um, I'll just bill you a higher rate <laughs> when it's not <laughs> for the podcast. But, but yeah, I feel like, yeah, that, that just struck me. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, thank you for bringing that up. I'm figuring it out. I'm figuring it out. It's a, it's a reason why I was drawn to doing this type of work at this point in my life is because it feels important for me to learn how to really confront and touch darkness and not let it stick in me and swim around in me to learn how to be in difficult situations and not have it turn into something that leads to depression leads to me feeling bad about myself feeling like I am wrong. Um, that feels like an important developmental task for me right now. Feeling like I am wrong, meaning I am wrong because I'm getting so overwhelmed by this. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. I think there's a tendency in me and in a lot of people to 
be when you're around somebody who's going through something really difficult to allow it to stick in you in such a way where you feel like it's your fault. You feel like it's your responsibility in some way. And so in a lot of ways, my work is a practice in recognizing that there are really difficult situations going on. Something terrible is happening for somebody else and that I'm going to do everything I can to help. And it's not, but it doesn't have to be about me. Yeah. It doesn't have to be about me. I don't have to feel, I have to feel sad. I have to feel, I have to allow the, the sadness to be felt and come out of me, but it doesn't have to be a, you did something bad. You hurt this person in some way. You didn't do a good enough job. You're not a good enough doctor. Does that make sense? It does. I, I don't know if I have that particular, um, well, as you're talking, it sounds, if, if I had just expressed that sentiment, I think you would have probably said, we're in, uh, we're in mom town. <laughs> oh, we're in mom town. I think we're in Jew town. Jew town. Yeah. I think it feels very, this sense of over-responsibility of, yeah. of personalizing. Over-responsibility and having difficulty putting down sadness and guilt yeah. and, and everything. This... I feel like I go to work in this traumatic place and it's hard for me to metabolize it and allow it to move through me afterward. I feel like I have to hold on to it and keep, um, like, st- yeah, I have to stay sad or something. Like you owe it to the, the sufferers. I owe it to, to hold, the sufferers. Yeah. yeah. And that wrong strikes with you if you me. feel okay. Yeah. You know, six hours after you walk out. Yeah. That strikes me as a, uh, as a universal thing, but a, definitely a quintessentially Jewish affliction where I don't I, know I, if it is universal. I don't know because I don't know if I fully relate to that. Maybe I'm a monster. Also, I've never been in a situation like that. I've, no. yeah, I've, I, well, I have been, I, I've been on the other end in a psyche <laughs> R, uh, but I suffice to say I was very, very consumed with my own suffering at those moments and not terribly concerned about what other people were going through. Uh, also I was injected with shit. So I don't even remember it that well, but, um, <laughs> but spe- I mean, speaking of which that is one of the aspects of my job that is the hardest for me. And that sticking people with, stick, uh, inject, injecting people with medication. Is, yeah. Especially yeah. You know, when they don't, when they yeah. don't agree with my decision to do that. Yeah. It's a very hard seems, decision to make. Yeah. Um, but, but I want to touch on, I don't know how universal this is. I, I don't think it's unique by any means, but, um, yeah, I don't know, but it, I, maybe it's not even important how universal it is. Cause it's, it's something you're experiencing. Yeah. Um, the aspect of it that feels very Jewish to me is the, I feel like there is an intergenerational custom, uh, a teaching of like, never forget, mm-hmm. always be remembering. You're irresponsible right. if you forget what happened to us. You're yeah, yeah. Like, look at it, look at it, look at it all the time. And I think do, that's very toxic. Do you, so I don't feel that, I mean, I feel like certainly there is that that strain in Jewish culture, if you can use such a broad phrase to describe something yeah. that is so diverse. But like, I was not, so the staircase of the house that I'm in right now, 
is lined with, I'm going to say 20 photos, you know, completely lined with photos. And the first, you know, 15 feet, a hundred percent of them died in the Holocaust. Yeah. You know, big family photos, not, not of, of all of our relatives who were in Europe, you know, um, as of whatever, 1940, 1941, zero of them made it out. Yeah. Not, not one survived. So that is there, but there was never a sense. Yeah. I was not raised with a sense of, oh, this is something that we have to constantly be thinking about and focusing on. Yeah. W- was that part of your upbringing? No, I, <laughs> I didn't. I, we also, we also had photos of the, <laughs> of the family who perished in the house. So there wasn't like a daily ritual of, <laughs> I didn't have to do my 15 Look minutes. at them. <laughs> Look at them. You're here because of them. My, my, my 20 minutes. Look at these little of, kids who are the same age you are now at age seven and nine. I mean, there are little kids in these photos. It's, it's, it's harrowing and heartbreaking to look at and think about, but I, I don't really, when I think about it or when, and when I did growing up, it was more like, wow, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's crazy that these people were, you know, are related to me and they're not, but it, it never, yeah. it never really hit me. Certainly the Holocaust, you know, I've, I guess I've grappled with it in different ways, but yeah, honestly, less less viscerally than I've grappled with things that don't as directly affect me, like race and yeah. slavery and things like that. I think mm-hmm. just because living in America. Um, yeah. So yeah, to 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 sum up, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that from my own experiences. This this real imperative or directive to to. It is there in Judaism for sure, but I, I, it's yeah. not saying that I've. I feel like has I, I I feel personally much of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're, you're excommunicated. Just, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm just more of a monster than you. You've not been doing your duty, your <laughs> ritual not, duty. I've not been feeling guilt for being alive. Yeah. yeah, a thing. I think a thing about my work is as maybe you know maybe this comes maybe this is related uh to the experiences of being a a jewish child you know who you are raised with the with the knowledge that this unbelievably horrible thing that you can't wrap your head around happened and you are perhaps a part of my psyche has always been trying to reckon with that and i think that my current job like something i was sitting with yesterday was yeah also just trying to figure out how to deal with the stuff that I see at work and how to how to make sense of it and what I came to was like I just need to acknowledge I just need to hold space for it like hold space for inside myself whatever reactions i have to this horror i need to look at it and just allow it to be there and sort of unwind out of my nervous system yeah and and maybe i'm making too big a deal out of this i i it, that maybe that is enough if you know with trauma there's with deep trauma it seems like often people really need support around that just because yeah. it's too too threatening too heavy for them to to allow out in the open on their own. And that's where, you know, MDMA has obviously has a, has a, has a very strong track record, MDMA assisted psychotherapy. Um, but yeah, certainly I think that that is what needs to be done. 
I, I think maybe this is what's coming up for me is, is yeah, just you want to be, I want you to be compassionate with yourself and, and, and appreciative of how hard that may be to, to actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. If you can do that, then I think you're in, you're in great, you're in great shape with this stuff, but that I feel like, you know, bringing it full circle vulnerability and all that stuff. There's a part of us, of all of us. I think this is universal that of course, when something traumatic, scary, distressing experiences, the last thing we want to do is allow them to, to sit there, allow them to unfold in memory. And, and, uh, yeah, we want to push them down because God, it was awful the first time. I, I don't ever want to think about that or look at that again. Yeah. And that's the real, that's the real trap that we get into with trauma is that why the fuck would I ever want to look at that again? And yet it's sitting inside of you festering like an abscess that needs to be cut open and drained. Like, why the fuck would I want to stick a scalpel into my arm? Yeah. That sounds, that sounds terrible. Who would want to do that? And yet, uh, ultimately it's necessary to not just let it keep festering in there. Yeah. So I think the question, and obviously only you can answer this is, yeah. What degree is, is this stuff that you can just kind of process on your own and what, and to what degree might you need some, some more support? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the challenge that I've set out for myself with my current setup where I'm working not a huge number of hours in the emergency room every month relative to a normal 40 hour a week job. You know, I'm working between maximum, you know, 30 hours a week, I would say on average there. That's a lot though. That's for a, that. That's a lot. I'm probably going to cut it back a little yeah. bit. Um, and I'm kind of going in a little bit traumatizing myself once or twice a week. And then I'm, I feel like I'm trying to then use the rest of my time to learn how to unwind and process and metabolize that, which maybe in six months, I'm going to decide that that's a stupid idea and I should just figure out a different way of supporting myself. Um, you know, case you know, once the thousands and thousands of dollars a month start rolling in, uh, in, podcast. in podcast revenue, maybe I'll, maybe I won't subject myself to this. <laughs> once I've moved out of my parents' attic, uh, <laughs> once I've given up my house and moved into your parents' attic, you to save on rent. <laughs> no, it's a, I, I think it's, it sounds like a worthy experiment, but yeah, yeah. It's also sounds it sounds challenging. I guess that's yeah. all, all I really have to say about it. I will say one thing to to sort of wrap up soon and tie it back into where we started. Um, last after this recent string of shifts, I was able to with Hannah uh, cry about work. Wow! Wow! Which is, um, I think she became the first woman with whom I have been able to cry while either yeah the first woman I've ever been with who I was able to cry with outside of when we were breaking up wow <laughs> yeah and you were you were sober you weren't meditating I was I was <laughs> I was not meditating. I say that because for me, yeah, because psychedelics, it's almost like cheating in terms of crying. I, I cry. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the things I most appreciate about psychedelics. Wow, but that, that yeah, that is a, I mean, talk about vulnerability. That's, that's, 
that's a degree of vulnerability that to let someone else see you like that and to feel that degree of safety and comfort and trust. Yeah, it was very beautiful. Yeah. It felt really good to to be able to experience that with her and feel, and she was wonderfully supportive and I felt very held by her. Um, so perhaps then my psyche um, rebelled against that. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, um, well, now I know what my goal is to, to get you to cry on this podcast. That will, uh, <laughs> well, that would be, it's not, I've never cried with my therapist, which is yeah. because I absolutely have a wonderful relationship with my therapist, been working with her for years, never cried with her. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite well, strange. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the fact you could with Hannah, I think s- says a lot yeah. and, and yeah, I mean, it does every, everything you're saying. It just points to you are, you're going deeper in the relationship. You are allowing yourself to be more vulnerable. And it makes sense to me that there's going to be this sort of compensatory, um, you know, or, or yeah, sort of desire impulse to close up as yeah. the vulnerability gets greater. And just to throw in a little bit of, uh, my unlicensed psychiatrist speculation, maybe this, this, is coming from that sort of internalized adolescent boy because that's the age where you first start to become aware of well eros sexual love mm-hmm. the vulnerability that goes along with that um i don't know yeah i don't have that much there no, but uh, on the right i think you're on something, so, something there. there yeah where it's Dr. like and, you know it's also that age where you you really are you know you're trying to assert yourself as your own independent being away from your no. parents yeah, you know, I because I see it with the the nephews and nieces. You know, the I mean, even my twelve year old, he's an incredibly sweet kid, so he still is kind of very very affectionate with the family. But soon enough, you know, there's that sort of no, I'm I want to be independent. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it myself, mom. Yeah, and so I think there's uh, yeah, I think there's a lot there, but I do think the choice is is simple. Do you want to keep opening your heart? And it sounds like that. It sounds like that's a clear yes. Yeah. Yeah. Clearer, even clearer now after this conversation. I thank you for that. Excellent. Well, I think I have your insurance information on file, but if not, I will be sending you an invoice. Yeah. Good luck with that. It's a really cheap Kaiser plan. (laughs) Bottom of the barrel. Stop bragging. You have insurance, man. Uh, if it can even be called that <laughs> well great talking as always yeah and man. uh yeah um so yeah i think we'll uh i look forward to the next one i'll just leave it at that i mean i i'm excited to see how things continue to uh, to evolve with with this relationship and with your own process yeah your own journey yeah thanks man i look forward to continuing to figure it out with you all right. Well, I love you, and I will talk to you soon. I love you too, man. Until next that time. That felt vulnerable. Now I just want to get the fuck away from you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.